Support for this podcast comes from GiveDirectly, a nonprofit that lets you send money directly to people living in extreme poverty. Due to the pandemic, global poverty rates are rising for the first time in two decades. In response, GiveDirectly has delivered contactless cash payments to over a half million people in seven countries in Africa. These countries are currently facing their highest COVID infection rates yet, and only 1.5% of Africa has been fully vaccinated. Giving cash lets individuals invest in what they need the most right now. Visit givedirectly.org slash COVID and your first gift will be matched up to $200. Hello and welcome to the Ostrom Update, COVID-19, a podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Ostrom is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Ostrom will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News, and I'm your host for these conversations. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Ostrom Update podcast. It's August 19th, and the summer wave of new COVID-19 infections, hospitalizations, and deaths in the U.S. shows no signs of slowing down. A summer that started with the feeling that the worst of the pandemic was behind us is now nearing an end with a heightened feeling of uncertainty, dominated by new questions about how much worse the current surge will get, how much protection the vaccines will continue to provide, and how much the highly transmissible Delta variant has changed the equation. As Dr. Ostrom likes to say, we now appear to be in a completely different ballgame. This week on the podcast, we're going to provide an update on the rapidly changing situation here in the United States and take a look at what's going on in the rest of the world. We'll also delve into the latest data on vaccine efficacy and the news that the Biden administration is now recommending a booster dose for all Americans. And Dr. Ostrom will answer a COVID query about what the end of the pandemic might look like. But first, we'll begin, as always, with Dr. Ostrom's opening comments and dedication. Thank you, Chris. Uh, great to be back with you and great to be back with our uh, podcast family. Uh, thank you for joining us if this is your first time. And for those who have been here before, thank you uh, for your continued participation in these podcasts and most of all for your incredibly, incredibly helpful comments, emails, text messages, letters, et cetera, that you send us. Um, this has become a ritual within our group that uh, sharing these comments uh, and then and then uh, really taking to heart the many wonderful things you say. So I just uh, I want to thank you for being back. I will start my podcast today, though, with a statement that I've unfortunately had to make a few times in the past weeks and one that uh, may cause you to have some questioning about uh, my credibility in doing these. And that is just how tough they're getting to do because of the confusion around the information that we have to share with you. And uh, it doesn't make it any easier. And I just want to thank the podcast production team for all the work that they do uh, to help make this possible, because it does take a lot of digging, a lot of understanding of what the information means or doesn't mean. And, and hopefully that work comes through in terms of uh, the messages you take home. I also want to acknowledge the past several weeks have been hard for many of us including myself. Uh, I know people who have been seriously ill with COVID and unfortunately several people who have died. Um, this virus 
uh, does not distinguish between those who may care about it or not care about it if, in fact, um, once it infects you, if you're not vaccinated. Another thing I want to emphasize today is that what COVID is doing to us individually, to our families, to our uh, communities uh, is really challenging, probably more so than any time in the pandemic, just because psychologically so many people were done with the pandemic uh, earlier this spring and early summer. And uh, being in a sense whipsawed back and forth by what is happening in our communities has made it even tougher in many instances to try to deal with what's happening. So I just want to acknowledge for you, again, as I did last week, if you're feeling confused, you're feeling sad, you're feeling depressed, you're unsure of yourself, don't think you're alone. You're not. Many of us are in the very same boat, including myself. So um, I just want you to understand you're with friends. And uh, later in the podcast, that will become more uh, meaningfully to you. And I uh, share some additional information with you. Now, the last piece I just want to say before I do the dedication is, again, um, it becomes more important every week for me just to recognize, remember, and even to the extent that we can celebrate the fact that these cases we talk about, these deaths we talk about are real people. There are mothers and our fathers, our brothers and our sisters, there are cousins, there are nieces. They are all the people we work with, the people who we celebrate life with on a daily basis, whether it be in our schools or in our churches or where we have neighborhood parties, etc. So we just can never forget the faces and the names and the essence of these people when we talk about these numbers. So it is in that regard that I make the dedication today, too. And again, I will come back to my point of reference as a grandfather of five very, very special grandchildren under the age of 12. Therefore, none of them can be vaccinated. School is starting here in Minnesota. It has already started in many parts of the country. It is an incredible challenge. It is in that regard that today I dedicate this podcast to our school board members, our school administrators, our teachers, other staff members, support staff, all those who make it possible for our educational system in this country and around the world to function, to provide those incredible results of educating our youngsters. And knowing that right now you're severely challenged. You're challenged by what some people in the community are promoting with regard to in-class education and what can and can't be done in mask mandates and all kinds of things like that. Over the course of the past uh, several weeks, I, like all of you, have had an opportunity to see on the news media the kinds of, of situations that school board members, school administrators, teachers, and others have found themselves in with regard to uh, some of the really sad and painful reactions of parents and other members in the community to try to protect our students. So today, this is dedicated to you, and thank you, thank you for your persistence in making our children a priority, not just from an educational standpoint, from a safety standpoint. Thank you. Mike, we went back to weekly episodes at the end of July, in part because too much was going on to keep people waiting for two weeks. Now it feels like we could be doing an episode every few days, given how much the situation is changing. Let's start with the international picture. What are you seeing? 
Well, first of all, I agree with your assessment. I feel like on any one given day, I'm drowning in information. And maybe that wouldn't be bad if that uh, information was, you know, somewhat easy to take down, but it's not. It's hard. And it's also confusing. So let me just give you again my best shot. What's happening around the world that then has implications for what's happening here in the United States? Uh, on a weekly basis, um, I'm going to sound a bit like a broken record, but the WHO in its last global case count reached 4.5 million cases. That's up from last week's total of nearly 4.4 million cases. This is the eighth consecutive week of increasing cases. The weekly deaths remain steady with just over 66,500 reported. We're in that period right now where it's kind of going up. I think it'll hit a peak particularly as the U.S. numbers start to come down eventually, but then other parts of the world are going to light up, and this is going to be that roller coaster, up and down, up and down. If we look at the regional patterns, um, in episode 62, which we put out on July 29th, just two weeks ago, we mentioned that the U.S., South America, and Europe were all reporting similar per capita cases for the first time in a long time at that time. The U.S. was reporting 17 cases per 100,000 population over a seven-day average, while both Europe and South America were reporting 18 cases per 100,000. Since that time, these regions have all headed in totally different directions. The U.S. is now at 42 cases per 100,000. Remember, it was at 17. Europe is now sitting at 18 cases per 100,000, identical to what it was two weeks ago. And the overall activity in South America continues to track downward with the region now reporting 11 cases per 100,000 as opposed to the 18. So this is part of that pattern we talked about. Some parts of the world going up, some parts of the world coming down, but overall the number of cases is increasing. If you've listened to the last two episodes of this podcast, you know that we've been using Australia and China as examples of just how challenging it can be to control a virus as transmissible as the Delta variant. While the fight for containment continues in those two countries, a new Delta battleground has emerged this past week. Let's take a look at Australia. Cases are still growing there, and the country could surpass all their previous peaks in the next week if the current case trends keep up. Most of the Australia's cases are still being reported around Sydney, which is now in its eighth week of lockdowns. Let me remind you again, eighth week of lockdowns. Other parts of the country are also seeing cases prompting the government to lock down the entire state of New South Wales, where Sydney is located, and other areas, including the Australian Capital Territory and Melbourne. With just one in five residents fully vaccinated and only a small percentage of the population who might expect immunity from natural infection, largely due to their successful containment to this point, Australia has a lot of people that remain susceptible to infection. We'll see if the country sticks to the strategy of moving forward as they race to get more shots into people's arms to help limit the virus impact. What we can say, however, is right now, this is at a point in Australia where it's unclear which way it's going to go, get much worse, or in fact, is it going to actually be suppressed by these activities that we're talking about? And let's now take a look at China. This is another country attempting to stamp out their Delta outbreak. The variant gained a foothold in the country in mid-July and quickly found its way to at least 48 cities and 18 provinces. Many would have thought after their initial control efforts and what they, in some cases, talked about getting the virus out of the country, 
would not have imagined this was possible, but this virus did just that, spread through these 18 provinces. China's highest priority has been containment of the virus, with some added motivation to get outbreaks under control before schools start opening up this next month. They've again turned to local lockdowns, restrictions on movement, and mass testing of entire cities to prevent further spread. Based on data reported over the past week, these, what I guess I would call heavy-handed actions, appear to be working. As of the past weekend, 36 of the 48 cities that had detected the variant didn't report any new cases during the previous week. Overall, cases in the country have also declined in each of the past several days. We'll see if China can once again contain the virus with these measures, but it gives you a sense also of the kind of extreme measures they had to take to try to contain it. I don't believe this could happen in most other countries around the world. And as I mentioned, finally, Delta has now made its way to New Zealand, one of my most favorite countries in the whole world. Uh, This country, which hadn't had a local case of COVID in six months, confirmed one case on Tuesday and four additional cases on Wednesday. According to Reuters, all five of the cases have been confirmed as Delta. New Zealand and its 5 million residents are now in a national lockdown for at least three days, while the city of Auckland, where the original case was found, will be locked down for the next seven days. Only 17% of the country's population has been fully vaccinated, but officials there are saying all residents 16 and older will be able to book appointments by September. Throughout the entire pandemic, New Zealand has reported less than 3,000 total cases and just 26 deaths. We will all stay tuned to see if New Zealand is successful in eliminating any additional transmission. We can only hope that it will be. But as we've also learned, where you have vulnerable populations, this virus will spread if given, given the least chance to do so. Now let's take a look at some countries with lower vaccination rates and what can we learn from them. First, let's go to Asia and the Middle East. Activity in the region appears to be leveling off following increases throughout July. There are just under 300,000 cases and 4,250 deaths being reported each day there. However, 13 countries in Asia and the Middle East remain at or near peak levels, including Japan, South Korea, Thailand, the Philippines, and Malaysia. Iran, the country we've mentioned in the last several episodes, also continues to stay hot. The country's fifth wave reached record high levels one month ago, but has continued to climb, although the growth rate might be slowing down now. Unfortunately, deaths are also shooting past previous peaks with Iran reporting a new single day high on Monday. In short, the healthcare system in Iran has been described by some is no longer bending, it is broken. This is an example of a country where Early on, after the second wave, people assumed that they had hit quote-unquote herd immunity, and yet look where we're at, three surges later with the highest number of cases. Not that, in fact, people are getting reinfected necessarily. It's just this virus doesn't end its search for humans until it has found all the humans that it can infect. We've also touched on Indonesia, mentioning case declines there in the last week's episode following the country's record-breaking Delta surge. Cases continue to drop, and daily deaths are now also descending. Despite the peak, Indonesia still leads the world in daily deaths, accounting for one in seven reported globally each day, a legacy of the Delta surge that happened several weeks ago. If we move to Africa, and per WHO, data for the African region is incomplete due to reporting delays, 
Let's see what we can still understand about what's happening there. The average daily cases and deaths in Africa remain near record high levels as the continent remains in its third wave. While Tunisia is still seeing declines following its Delta surge, decreases have stopped in South Africa, where activity now remains well above the previous baselines. Meanwhile, cases are rising sharply in other African countries like Kenya and Togo. Moving to Latin America, although overall activity in the region continues to decline, countries like Cuba and Mexico are still experiencing record-setting waves that are being attributed to Delta. Around one-quarter of the residents in both countries are fully vaccinated. Decreasing activity in previously hard-hit countries like Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, and Paraguay are driving the regional declines there. However, don't be surprised to see cases start going back up again in some of these places as the Delta prevalence grows. Remember, we've talked about this pattern. Steep increase with a surge, relatively steep decrease as the surge drops. However, not going back to baseline, basically staying elevated and then leveling off. And now as we're seeing in some countries starting to go up again. This is a pattern that we have to follow carefully as it has real implications for what we might expect to see here in the United States. One of the things that we do know that vaccinations are beginning to ramp up in a number of Latin American countries, which is great news. A story published in the Wall Street Journal on Tuesday reported that around two of three residents in both Chile and Uruguay are now fully vaccinated. Other countries in the regions have vaccination rates that fall below the U.S., but they're quickly gaining ground. For example, Mexico is currently vaccinated at a rate two times faster than the United States. Argentina, Colombia, and Peru are administering vaccines at three times that speed. And last week, Panama administered doses at a rate six times faster than we're doing here in the U.S. It's obvious that more vaccines that get into people's arms, all the better, is that this will surely blunt future surges. That's especially true in this region, which is home to just 8% of the world's population, but now accounts for one out of every three COVID deaths worldwide. Now let's talk a little bit about countries with higher vaccination rates. These are the countries that we look to in particular for lessons learned for the United States. Let's go back to the United Kingdom. More than six in 10 UK residents are now fully vaccinated including 77% of adults, far exceeding our vaccination levels. We mentioned last week that the case declines in the UK had stopped after falling from the Delta peak for several weeks ago. At one point, those case numbers were close to 47,000 new cases per day. Last week, they reported an average of 28,000 cases a day, but up from 26,000 several days before. Now today, the UK is reporting 29,600 cases a day and hospitalizations are again on the rise. 6,300 residents are currently admitted to the hospital for COVID. As of Tuesday, the UK's average daily death toll from COVID was at 93, still about tenfold below that that it was during the peak. What are the lessons again learned from the UK? With a Delta variant surge, case numbers go up quickly and dramatically. They begin to drop quickly, but they don't ever go back to baseline. Um, at one point, uh, if just before the Delta surge in the UK, case numbers were running at between 1 and 2,000 per day. Now they're at 29,600, far below that peak, but nonetheless still present. 
The key message, though, that comes through time and time again, the vaccines have fundamentally changed the number of deaths. We've seen a tenfold reduction in deaths, even with these large numbers of cases, which we attribute largely to the vaccine. Now let's talk about Israel. And we'll be coming back to Israel as we talk more about vaccines later on. All eyes are on Israel, which is now being described as an experiment in real time. Six in 10 residents are fully vaccinated, including 78% of individuals age 12 and up. Despite the high vaccination rates, cases in Israel keep climbing, with the seven-day average about to surpass last fall's peak and closing in on their record-high winter peak. Today, for example, 926 individuals are hospitalized. That's up from 662 last week. 559 are considered seriously ill. That's up from 388 last week. Israel is reporting an average of 18 deaths a day, up from an average of 11 last week at this time, and four deaths a day the week prior. The country's campaign to get third doses into arms continue with more than 1.1 million already administered. More than half of Israelis ages 60 and older have now received a third dose, with preliminary data suggesting that booster recipients are at less risk of infection. Data on its effectiveness against severe disease is still pending. Again, we'll come back to this situation, but I want to remind people in the face of such a highly vaccinated population, look at what this virus is still doing. Not because the vaccine is failing, but because it continues to find those individuals who are not yet vaccinated. Last week, we touched on Iceland in our episode as it was getting a lot of media attention due to a surge in cases despite having one of the world's highest vaccination rates. Again, more than 7 in 10 residents of Iceland are fully vaccinated, including greater than 90% of individuals aged 16 and older. Last week, the country was reporting 110 cases a day and 24 individuals were hospitalized. Now the average daily cases are down slightly to 97 and 26 individuals are hospitalized. The country has yet to report any deaths from this surge. They, given the level of vaccination, uh, we can surely understand why we have so few deaths, but it also points out the ability of this virus to be transmitted even in a country where the levels of vaccination are so high. Let me this week just briefly touch on Canada. Uh, finally, our neighbors to the north are worth that mention, with 64% of their population fully vaccinated. However, Delta has now become dominant there. Cases in the country are now five times higher than they were last month, although they currently remain well below previous peaks. It's really too early to see the impact on severe disease in Canada. But I want to remind everyone, while we were spared the alpha surge nationwide back in uh, March, April, and May, Canada was not. The largest surge of the pandemic occurred back then. So it'll be important to understand what this next surge might look like. With that, the bottom line message on countries around the world is this virus is not anywhere close to being done with us. And I know we're all growing very tired of it, but we're seeing country after country after country go through surges, case numbers drop, period of time of lower case numbers, and then another surge. And I think that this is going to continue to be a pattern for some time until we get the majority, if not most, of the world vaccinated. So here in the U.S., the summer surge is still being primarily driven by the southern Sunbelt states, where vaccination rates are low. But we're also now seeing states with higher proportions of vaccinated people, like Oregon and Hawaii, getting hit hard. 
So what what's going on? And and given that the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center this week noted that many states are no longer providing daily data on cases, hospitalizations and deaths, do we really have a clear picture of what's going on? Every morning, the first job I have to do when I get up out of bed is to scrape off the three to four inches of mud on my crystal ball. And then I go to work. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, unfortunately, this surge is playing out much as we've been predicting for some time. Um, you know, it's not a surprise to me that the surge is here. Uh, we had more than enough human wood to burn for this coronavirus forest fire. Also, I just want to point out that even as we were talking about increasing number of people getting vaccinated in this country, which is great news, two things. Number one, we still have at least 85 to 90 million people who could be vaccinated who are not. That is a lot of wood for this virus to burn. Second of all is the fact that with this surge, even the uptick in vaccinations are going to have limited impact on the actual height and speed of the surge movement. Why? Because it takes four to six weeks to develop immunity, even after the two vaccine series. And so from that perspective, it's a, please get vaccinated. You don't want to be part of a future surge. You don't want to be part of cases after the surge uh, basically is over. But for right now, we have to understand that this surge is acting out its destiny, not because of our vaccines being administered. It's basically being impacted on two things. What One, what the virus is going to do when it wants to do it, and it has been doing it since the beginning of the pandemic. And two, what steps we've taken to get vaccinated already or how we're limiting our contact in the public with regard to transmission. And that includes not only distancing, but also the masking issue, which we'll talk briefly about in a second. Um, it's very important to understand that uh, just like the international picture, and as I've painted for you over the last several weeks, we're an amalgam of different state activities. So the southern Sunbelt states are one example of a group of states that we're seeing very high uh, case numbers, lots of transmission. But now we're starting to see other regions of the country that they too are beginning to light up. And as I've pointed out from the beginning, the height and the breadth of this surge will depend completely on not just what happens in those southern Sunbelt states, but will the other areas of the country light up in a similar manner or even in a partial manner. So let me just give you a sense of where we're at. I know for many this seems inconceivable that we could be here. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised, and we shouldn't be surprised when we have future surges hopefully not nearly as large as this one, but as I pointed out just a moment ago, we still have a lot of susceptible people. That's why we have to make vaccine uh, and vaccinations job one. The U.S. is now reporting 140,000 new cases a day, more than double the levels recorded during last summer's surge. We're conducting over 1 million tests a day, a number that has nearly doubled in the past month. However, it's very important to understand that we were running 1.6 to 1.8 million tests most days from mid-November to late January when we experienced our winter surge. I can say without any question, we are under testing here in the United States. And so we're missing cases. There are currently 88,500 Americans hospitalized for COVID. 
It is stretching our healthcare systems in a number of areas of this country beyond anything that they have seen any time in the pandemic to date. This 88,500 number is up from last week's total of 74,000. The number of current hospitalizations has increased by 64,200 over the past month. Let me just repeat that. This number has increased by 64,200 over the past month. If the pace continues over the next month, we'll blow well past our peak high of 135,000 hospitalizations during the winter surge. The impact that these cases are having on the U.S. healthcare system particularly in certain regions, but even around the country, cannot be overstated. Uh, it is surely a challenge, as we're seeing in the southern Sunbelt states, but as you may have seen, the National Guard has been called in Oregon to help provide support care for patients there. And part of the situation is it's not about just hospital beds. We don't have enough staff to go around. The number of nurses right now that are needed in this country to provide this kind of care are far, far below the levels that we should have. And even in a place like the Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area, because of the concurrence of COVID, which is still relatively lower here in terms of incidence compared to the Southern Sunbelt states, but because of that COVID and because of respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, in kids, we've been on divert for a number of our hospitals here, meaning that there are no beds available for these pediatric patients, and particularly in the intensive care units. I know at least several times this past week, the pediatric intensive care units in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area have been totally full. There are no patient beds available. That gives you a sense of what's happening in our area, which is not yet experiencing fully what we're seeing in other areas of the country. So it just has to be understood that we really have taken our healthcare systems to the very edge. They have bent and bent and bent. And as several healthcare administrators in the Southern states have said, they are but now broken. If we look at the number of deaths, this is still good news relative to the past surge, but a challenging number that we have to follow closely. Nearly 700 Americans are now dying each day from COVID, up from 600 just last week. It's important to note, however, that the number of deaths is far below what we experienced during the peak in January when we were at about 3,300 deaths a day. So that, like we're seeing in the UK, vaccines have clearly played a major role in reducing the number of deaths relative to the number of cases, and the number of hospitalizations. Unfortunately, we do expect the number of deaths to increase well past the 700 number. And while I don't think it'll ever hit the 3,300 cases a day we saw in early January, it still is going to be an increased number. However, today we reported 1,100 deaths for just this day. If we look at state trend data, the activity is still increasing in nearly every state, although there are some signals of peaks in states like Arkansas, Missouri, and Nevada. The U.S. has 42 cases per 100,000 population. This in comparison to the country of Georgia, which remains at number one with 133 cases per 100,000 population. However, some states would still rank near the top of that list if they were countries. Florida, at 115 cases per 100,000 today, would rank number two. Mississippi, at 114,000 cases per 100,000 population, would follow closely behind at number three. And Louisiana, which had been higher, 
but now at 108 cases per 100,000 would sit at number four. Think of that. Three of the top four countries or populations are actually in the United States of America, where vaccines are plentiful. Most of the country's activity is still centered in the southern Sunbelt states, but we're now seeing noteworthy rises in some western states and continued increases in the Midwest. Cases and hospitalizations in Oregon are at an all-time high. As I noted earlier, the National Guard's actually been called in to support the needed care for patients in the state of Oregon. In addition, a similar trend is now playing out in the Washington state area. You noted, Chris, in your introduction to this section about the report from the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. This is a very important report, and it addresses the growing inconsistencies when it comes to the reporting of COVID data by states. Lauren Gardner and Beth Blauer, who authored the report, stated the following. When released, our first blog on state reporting cadences in June, there were about 100,000 new cases in the United States. 21 states had stopped reporting COVID data on the weekends, and only three states were reporting less frequently. Cases have increased, however, ninefold to over 900,000 new cases last week, and the states continue to reduce their reporting cadences. As of today, 36 states do not update their dashboards with all data streams every day. 11 states report fewer than five days a week. Six states report certain data only once a week. And Nebraska as a state has even shut down its state dashboard. What this is really telling us is the fact that we are seeing a major surge in activity, but we're not even really sure how big that surge is. If anything, we're having to rely on hospital-based data because there is a more constant number in the sense of people are typically do not elect to or not go to a hospital if they're severely ill. They go. But I think it's been really a challenge for us. And as they also noted in this report from the Johns Hopkins group, as has been the case throughout the pandemic, decision makers at all levels need more public data, not less, to properly assess the state of the outbreak forecast future conditions, and plan response efforts accordingly. Obscuring the reality of this phase of COVID-19 is dangerous and could lead to deadly outcomes. I wish more attention was being paid to this, why states are cutting back. I understand the issues around uh, support staff. They basically had broken down the systems that they had in place to collect cases during the height of the early surges of the pandemic and thinking that it was over with this summer but we need this reinstituted as quickly as possible. In terms of what's happened in the U.S. right now in hotspots, according to the New York Times article from this past Tuesday, hospitals in the U.S. are starting to buckle. As I pointed out earlier, this is a huge challenge. One in five ICUs in the country are now at 95% capacity or greater. Seven states now have had hospitalizations that surpassed levels recorded even during the prior winter or summer peaks. It's clear that patients are receiving less than optimal care. For example, the entire state of Alabama had no ICU beds left on this past Tuesday. At least 11 additional patients in the state needed ICU care, so makeshift beds are being added to hallways or emergency rooms. Mississippi recently requested a military hospital ship and nearly 1,000 federal medical personnel to help accommodate the staff shortages. Texas has asked for assistance from out-of-state healthcare workers to help alleviate the burdens on the healthcare system 
and recently requested five mortuary trailers from the federal government as a precautionary measure in case they need to handle a surge in deaths. In Tennessee and Oregon, as I mentioned before, the National Guard has been deployed to help respond to rising hospitalizations and the bed shortages. And it's important to note, as I did before, adults aren't the only ones being impacted either. The pediatric situation continues to get worse with nearly 300 kids now being admitted to the hospital each day for COVID, a record high. And based on the information we're obtaining from these uh, pediatric hospitalizations, these are sicker kids than we've ever seen at any time through the pandemic. Many of these children are requiring ventilators, and even a number of them are being treated with ECMO. A total of more than 1,800 kids in the U.S. are now currently hospitalized for the disease. We're already seeing widespread transmission among kids that lead to disruption in states where classes have started. For example, in Florida's Hillsborough County, more than 8,400 students are either in quarantine or isolation. Over the past two weeks, the district has detected more than 1,600 total cases among students and staff. In Mississippi, around 20,000 students, 4.5% of the state's public health school population, are currently quarantined. Similar situations are playing out in other parts of rural Texas, metro Atlanta, and Tennessee. Remember, these are the areas where their schools opened up before they did in other parts of the country. In short, Delta has turned much of the U.S. into a house on fire, and unfortunately, we continue to fight it with a garden hose in terms of trying to stop its transmission in our communities. So let's turn now to the vaccines. We're getting data from around the world, most notably from Israel and the United Kingdom, but now from the CDC on vaccine efficacy against the Delta variant and on waning immunity. Mike, I think a lot of people are confused right now about the vaccines. They're hearing about breakthrough infections, about waning immunity. What is the picture right now on the efficacy of these vaccines? Well, I have to start out with a very critical statement, the most important statement I'll make in this podcast. These vaccines are the most important tool we have in stopping the transmission of this virus in our communities, of preventing people from having serious illnesses and even dying. So make no mistake about it. Vaccines are our only truly effective, comprehensive get out of jail card we've got. So what I'm gonna share with you again today is exactly what I talked about last week, is that there are two buckets we have to consider when we talk about vaccines. One is the safety issue. The second is how well do they work relative to how we use them? And I wanna be perfectly clear, that first bucket, available COVID vaccines are remarkably safe. Even when you take the reports of the very rare adverse events following vaccination, like the myocarditis or the clotting, what we call the risk-benefit analysis, meaning looking at, if I get vaccinated, what's my chances of having a bad thing happen? If I don't get vaccinated and I get COVID, what are the chances of a bad thing happening? And in every one of the situations where even one could consider a potential safety issue, the risk-benefit favors vaccination over and over and over again. So I want to be really clear, none of this discussion you're going to hear from me today or any of the discussion you should be hearing publicly has to do with safety. 
the only way I would tell you to reconsider or think twice about getting this vaccine is if I thought safety was an issue. And also make no mistake about it, the fact that the FDA and the CDC are monitoring and investigating very rare events all the time should give you great confidence that these vaccines are safe. So hopefully my statements are clear and compelling and they're based on the data. You can trust these vaccines as being as safe as we've had of any kind of vaccine in our armamentarium over the years to fight infectious diseases. However, I need to reflect on this journey with these vaccines and consider how our understanding of them has changed over time and will continue to change as we learn more information. Remember that our initial outlook on these vaccines was based on results from clinical trials. These clinical trials were the gold standard for determining vaccine efficacy. They were highly controlled, and we have to acknowledge their results don't always translate perfectly to the real world for numerous reasons. Let me lay out several issues that really are important in understanding what's happening with our current vaccines and preventing COVID-19. There are really three different factors that come to play about how well a vaccine works in protecting us. Number one is, of course, the infectious agent, the variant itself. Is this one that will escape the immune protection afforded by a vaccine? And I have to say, with as much information as we have today, we don't have any evidence necessarily that the Delta variant means that the vaccines are less effective. That could be the case. I've seen one limited study that might suggest that, but there were still a lot of aspects of that study that need to be understood. But on a whole, it doesn't matter if you're getting infected, you're getting sick, severely ill, or dying. The question is, does in fact the vaccine protect you? So I'm going to put the variant aside other than to say that this is a highly, highly transmissible virus, and it's all the more reason why I'm going to get vaccinated. But we don't know yet that it's impacting how well vaccines work. The second thing, though, is underlying risk factors for severe disease. As you've heard me discuss on this podcast numerous times, we understand that for some vaccines, such as influenza vaccines among the elderly population, the level of protection drops precipitously due to what we call immunosenescence, just a less capable immune response. So we would expect to see no less with this vaccine. Remember that we didn't include many, many of the frail elderly in any of the studies that were done. And so when we had those early, really eye-popping results suggesting 95% or more protection, you know, we left out those people, not because we didn't want to study them, but because we were trying to get a better handle on from a safety standpoint and from an effectiveness standpoint, how well did it work in most people in society who were not at increased risk of having serious disease? So in this situation, if we look at the issue of underlying risk factors such as age, we look at uh, uh, immunocompetency overall. Am I immune deficient because of some clinical condition I have like a cancer? Am I on certain drugs that suppress my immune system so that I don't have a condition caused by that overactive immune response? All of these issues can surely make for reduced protection with a vaccine. Finally, we have to look at the dose itself. How much is in the dosage? 
how many micrograms of antigen or the material that we're trying to basically develop the antibody against and the T cell reaction against. And also, when is multiple doses given? And as you know, with the Pfizer vaccine, dose two was given three weeks after the first dose. With Moderna, it was given at four weeks. Now, I have to tell you that, uh, you know, if you also remember, I was one of those back in March, very concerned about the uh, potential for alpha to spread through the United States. And at the time, we had enough data from England to say a single dose at that point would have substantially reduced the serious illness associated with alpha. And we urged that in a time of vaccine shortages to get as many people, particularly those 65 years of age and older, vaccinated with even a single dose. And we heard this outcry from some of the immunologists and people in infectious diseases, no, 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 you have to stick with the schedule of three or four weeks, as somehow if that was the only way in which these doses could be administered. And now we're beginning to reconsider that whole approach, not because of getting single doses, we've got plenty of vaccine now for that, but it's because did we give the immune system of that vaccine recipient time to respond to the first dose in such a way as to maximize how well the second dose works? Look at how many immunizations we give a series with, and we also delay the time period for the second or third dose to many months. That is all about getting the maximum response out of your immune system with the subsequent dose. And one of the challenges I think we're having right now is the three and four week second dose surely maximized on the chance to have early protection. But did it really leave us in a shortfall for long-term protection? And I think we're going to see over the course of the next weeks to months research demonstrating that we may have do much better with our vaccines if we space them out. One of the areas we're learning about is in the UK and Canada both countries that had vaccine shortages, so they did approach their programs with that one dose now and get the second dose 10 weeks later. And so when we talk about the dosing issue, even with these studies, we need to be clear and compelling how were the vaccines delivered, and therefore let's compare the data from that. So uh, I'll, I'll talk more in a moment about specific vaccines and now but know that underlying the challenges about understanding how well these vaccines work, it's all about how much dosage in the vaccine. Moderna had twice as much as Pfizer. When was it given relative to dose one and dose two? And what are the underlying risk factors for the people who have received these vaccines? And I'll make the assumption that Delta is basically a static issue. It's either there or it's not. And I want to be very careful about that because some of the studies we're talking about were done before Delta ever showed up. And that may be a real problem in terms of interpreting those data. So at this point, I will just say, I think it's really unclear what we need to do with our vaccines. And what I mean by that is, is that, first of all, keep doing what we're doing. Don't stop that. But in terms of what's been found in the CDC studies that were just released yesterday, the new studies from the Mayo Clinic, the new studies from Israel, the studies from England, a uh, study from Qatar, I think the themes are as follows. One is that these vaccines are still very, very effective across the board in preventing serious illness and hospitalizations. 
There may be some downward creep on that, but in fact, they still are very effective at doing that. And remember, if that's from a standpoint of an outcome, that's still a very, very critical outcome to have. If, so I, I don't want to minimize the people who are now having breakthrough infections who are much milder, but in the end, preventing stress on our healthcare system, preventing people from getting seriously ill and dying. And at this point, really, there's only one study that suggests that that may not be the case where people are actually having more serious illness. And I think we're going to need to get more information on that before we move forward. Second of all, what we're looking at right now is time. Time meaning that from the time I got vaccinated till now is six or seven months. Am I experiencing waning immunity over that time period? So I can't compare the response of people at two or four months to people at six, eight, or 10 months. And so these studies have to be standardized on that. What does that mean? Are we seeing many more breakthrough infections at six to seven months, as surely seems to be the case with healthcare workers? We're also seeing some of this in long-term care. So when will I see these breakthroughs and what will they mean? And one thing we're all trying to understand, if people do have breakthrough infections, which are occurring much more frequently than we have previously stated, not because we misstated it or we intentionally tried to cover anything up, it's because we're now just understanding how many milder infections are likely to occur. But the question is, are they infectious? And if they're infectious, what does that do to the overall transmission in the community? So as you may have heard, but yesterday, the White House came out with a statement basically indicating that they were now going to be recommending booster doses for all those who have received the previous mRNA vaccines. They did not comment specifically on what to do about J&J vaccines, which is unfortunate, but because of the lack of clear information, they've decided that, in fact, that they could not make a comment on that yet. That's supposed to be a state-tuned moment. What the administration has decided, based on the data that I mentioned from these studies outside the United States and these three recent studies from the CDC, is that they are now recommending that with approval by the FDA and the ACIP, that they are prepared to offer COVID-19 booster shots to fully vaccinated adults beginning the week of September. September 20th, and starting eight months after an individual's second dose. So assuming this waning immunity has occurred, we'll pick up people each month at their eighth month uh, anniversary of having been vaccinated. The plan that they're promoting ensures that the people who are fully vaccinated earliest in the vaccination route will likely be eligible for the booster first. These are the people who were in that first rollout, the most vulnerable population like healthcare providers, nursing home residents, and other seniors. Booster shots will also begin to be delivered directly to residents of long-term care facilities again. First of all, you have turnover, where you surely have people who weren't there when the vaccines were first administered, plus, again, waning immunity. The White House was very clear. They're not recommending anyone go out and get a booster dose today. Instead, starting the week of September 20th, fully vaccinated adults could begin getting booster shots eight months after their second shot of mRNA vaccine. How that will happen, how those people will be recalled, or how they will be able to document that these people are at eight months, I don't know. That's going to be a challenge. But that's the approach. 
The J&J vaccine was not administered in the U.S. until March of 2021. Therefore, we expect more data in the J&J in the next few weeks and then before it hits that eight-month period, which will be later. So we'll have to wait and see on that. Our, our group has looked at this data carefully. I've talked to many of my colleagues about this in the course of the last uh, 24 to 48 hours, and I think we all remain a bit confused. Do the data support that we need a booster dose to prevent serious illness, hospitalization, and deaths? Or is it to reduce the number of breakthrough infections of a much milder illness? Uh, there's no question that there's an increasing number of milder cases in vaccinees. And uh, does that warrant a booster dose? That's the question we're going to be trying to better answer over the course of the next several weeks. Meanwhile, this recommendation is now going into place. I think it's fair to say that a number of my colleagues do not agree with the need now for a booster. Uh, so where does that leave the public? Uh, I'm sorry. I wish we were doing a better job for you. Uh, I think at this point, I have every reason to believe that the administration, much like the governments of Israel, some of the other European countries which are recommending boosters, only want to protect the public. I don't see any political implications here. I don't see any you know, financial issues. All I see are really dedicated people trying to do their best to protect the public. Others disagree on the nature of the science and say it's not necessary yet. And so please understand as you see this go back and forth and you see confusion in the ranks, do not confuse us with the need to get vaccinated. One of the things the administration has assured us is that they will make certain that there's more than plenty first and second doses for those who have not yet been vaccinated and that they will also have vaccine for those or individuals who are immune compromised and who were covered last week in the recommendation to get a third dose. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. But at this point, I all ask you to stay tuned. We'll do our best job of working through the data in terms of what your risk is or not. Um, I, there's nothing to panic about right now. There's no emergency situation. That's why, in fact, um, you'll see that when they made a recommendation to start this in late September, it wasn't done because of the fact that um, they did. They sensed it was an emergency, but they couldn't get it together by then. There wasn't a sense of emergency. So at this point, I just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry we don't have more clear information for you. We need to be. Um, it's a really difficult time to be making major public health recommendations on such incomplete information. At the same time, those who are making it would argue you don't want to wait until the problem is right on top of you before you make it, because it would take a while for that program to be put into place. And that means then we would have people who would surely go off the protection cliff, and um, they very well could be at a much higher vulnerability for serious illness, hospitalizations, or deaths. So stay tuned. Bottom line messages, vaccines are safe please help us get people vaccinated. Number two, this is corrected science. Remember what I talked about over the past uh, podcast? We're trying to figure out as new scientific information becomes available, how the best way to use these vaccines. That's what's happening right now. It's not a question, can they make an impact on the public health crisis called COVID? 
I've already pointed out in this podcast on multiple occasions, the number of deaths have been dramatically reduced in those countries where, in fact, we see high rates of vaccination. But let me just close on one last piece. Another thing that came up was the global equity. And I think that a quote from Dr. Mike Ryan, who heads up the emergency response team at the World Health Organization, an internationally respected um, infectious disease public health expert, said today after the initial announcement by the U.S., and I quote, giving COVID booster shots in wealthy countries is the equivalent of giving extra life jackets to people who already have life jackets while leaving people who have no life jackets to drown. Wow. Pretty straightforward, huh? Well, some would disagree with him on that, saying that, in fact, this is important, or these people who are needing these booster doses would themselves be at increased risk of having serious illness down the road and dying. Remember, here we are in the United States of America, where we have, you know, some of the highest rates of transmission in the world. This is going to continue to play out. The administration made it very clear they'll continue to expand efforts to increase the supply of vaccines to other countries, building on the over 600 million doses they've already committed to donate globally, that this will not slow that down. Um, I think we have to wait and see. This is a huge challenge, ethically, morally, (laughs) and just practically. We know that to control this pandemic, we have to control it worldwide. We know that the real risk of variant development is not just in the United States, it's anywhere where we see transmission of this virus. And so it surely is humanitarian in nature to want to try to prevent infections throughout the low and middle income countries, where less than 2% of those people in those countries have had any access to this vaccine. At the same time, we also know that it's more than humanitarian, it's strategic. If you want to prevent new variants from developing and being transmitted throughout the world and then potentially threatening the integrity of our vaccines, you want to stop transmission everywhere. And for much of the world that has little to no vaccine, that's where we're going to continue to see over time the greatest number of new infections. So there is a real tension here between how do you take care of those people or in your country to maximize the prevention of them experiencing an infection or even a serious illness or a death? And how do you then allocate getting those vaccine doses to the rest of the world that have seen none? I wish I had a Solomon-like answer for you. I don't. I see both sides of the issue. um, And I can say at this point, as we get more data, if we are not seeing the increases in deaths hospitalizations, et cetera, associated with potential waning immunity, then I think we got to rethink this. If we are, then we'll have made the right decision to try to protect lives in high-income countries, and ultimately every country will want to have that kind of a three-dose series to protect themselves. Finally, for those of you who are J&J recipients, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I think it's really unfortunate we don't have more data in this country to support whether or not you need a booster dose. And I think at this point, it's likely you will. Uh, It's just a challenge at getting the information so that it can be done based on some science as opposed to just somebody like me saying, I think so. So stay tuned. There's more to come. Um, 
nothing urgently needed out of anyone right now. Uh, and I think that's the important message. Mike, as you just mentioned, the uh, FDA and CDC last week signed off on a third dose of vaccine for moderately and severely immunocompromised adults. What did you make of that decision? This is an important decision. And let me distinguish why it doesn't fall into the category of what I just talked about with booster doses. As I mentioned, many of the childhood immunizations have multiple dose requirements before you really are fully vaccinated, three and four different doses. And what the situation is here is we had anywhere from seven to nine million individuals in this country who, because of underlying immune deficiencies, immune suppression, basically are at risk of infection because they never responded well to the first two doses of the vaccine. Now we have data supporting that, however, third doses can actually override that immunosuppression and give you a very good response. So the recommendation last week to cover these seven to nine million people was really all about finishing the prime series. It's not a booster dose. It really is taking three doses to get to the point of being protected. I fully support that, completely support that. And that should not be seen as part of this booster dose issue. For anyone worldwide who has any one of these immune suppressing conditions has to understand that they too will need likely three doses of the vaccine. So I commend the FDA and uh, ACIP for moving forward. However, I did have a problem with how the ACIP handled access to the vaccines for these people. What they did is put together a list of these are the conditions upon which you would qualify for getting an additional dose. But they made it so it's an honor system. Anybody can go to a pharmacy or a doctor's office and get vaccinated and just say, I have this immune suppressing condition. Well, we've already seen over a million people who wanted the third dose anyway, who have come forward and somehow been able to get through the system and get a third dose. I worry that we're going to see a big increase in people, particularly in light of this discussion I just had, where people are now talking about getting a third dose. And they're going to say, aha, I'm not going to wait till September. I'm going to get it now. And, you know, I don't understand why we couldn't put in place a doctor's order or a standing order for people to actually get vaccinated. If, you're, if you have one of these conditions or you're on a drug that suppresses your immune response, we know who you are. I mean, we can look at what we call ICD codes, the codes in, for you for what kind of conditions would qualify for getting the vaccine as a third dose. And I think it's going to be a free-for-all. I, I think it should have been where you have to have proof of the need for the vaccine. And why they didn't do that, I don't know. I think, you know, they surely can say, well, we wanted to cut down on paperwork, whatever. I think what they're going to do is for that inconvenience, they're going to create a major challenge in terms of who really qualifies and who doesn't. So great, great news to get this recommendation for a dose. However, I believe as it's being rolled out right now is going to be a very substantial challenge. Mike, going back to your dedication, when we look at the big picture in the U.S. right now, the surging cases, the contagiousness of the Delta variant, very little mitigation, what does this all mean for schools? 
unfortunately, the school environment right now is going to be a severe challenge. And in a sense, we have this experiment going on, and our kids are the ones who are being experimented upon. And I have a real problem with this, a real problem. Uh, you know, I've been talking about this for months. You know, the recommendations have come out about education, in-person education. Again, I remind you of my five grandchildren, age 11 and younger. I think about their needs for in-class education, the in-person contact, and I think, oh, boy, they need that. They need that so much. But I also think about what is the safety issues. And what I've seen happen in this country, just as it's been with so many other issues, we've seen two camps develop. you got to do in-class learning. The kids are going to hell in a handbasket if they don't. Um, all the economic issues of parents having to stay home, all true, by the way, about the, the parents and so forth. But no, no matter what, we're going to do in-person learning. And then there are those who said, you know, not on my watch. My kids are, you know, at risk. I don't want this to happen. Or if it's going to happen, they have these kind of conditions upon how they will be protected in the schools, masking, all this kind of thing. Meanwhile, in this great debate, the in-class education people, in a sense, won. And what I mean by that is they basically came up with recommendations, which the CDC have put forward, which I think absolutely are not based on science. They're based on a type of analysis of what happened in our schools in those first nine months of the pandemic when we had no major issues with variants like Alpha and, and Delta and came up with the conclusion that, you know, we could have kids three feet apart and they're just fine. They could put anything on their face, you know, a hanky on their face and it's fine. Well, we know today that's not true. We know kids can transmit this virus readily. Kids can get infected with this virus readily. And while as a percentage of those who get infected, it's a lower percentage of people experiencing severe illness, we have seen across the country, I've just shared with you, the challenges we're seeing with pediatric cases. It's at an all-time high throughout the entire pandemic, the number of kids hospitalized right now in serious condition. Look at, I already shared with you the data on the number of kids that are quarantined or isolated right now because of infection in these early weeks of school in the southern states. To think that you can stop a virus like this now being three feet apart from somebody is beyond pixie dust wishful thinking. And this is coming from a guy that wants my kids in school. I want my grandkids to be able to experience that. But we have to be real about the risk. And to deny that right now, I think, is a real challenge. Many of the schools have done very little to change the ventilation in the schools. Fortunately, we are seeing more teachers, support staff, and others vaccinated. But we also have large segments of our communities that parents aren't getting vaccinated. So they're going to be sources of transmission to their kids or their kids back to them either way. But then once it happens, it gets into the school. Once it's in the school, it's like lighting one match in a very, very small pile of wood that ultimately becomes the forest fire. I think this surge is a real challenge. I think sending kids to school is just a invitation for this virus to transmit readily by, through, and with them. 
And at this point, you know, my recommendations continue to be you can't put kids in a room where you have them three feet apart. And respiratory protection, I'm so <laughs> frustrated. We talk about masking, masking, masking. We never talk about the quality of the masking. You know, you can put it in front of your face. If you're masked now, you're fine. That's not true. We know that. You've heard me say this so many times in this podcast. You can't call me an anti-mask person. I am a very strong supporter of masking, but effective masking. And I, if you want more information on that, go back to the previous two podcasts. I went into detail on those where you can get the kind of best quality protective kinds of masks, the KN95s, et cetera, that fit kids, et cetera. So I, I think that school is going to be a real challenge. And I worry that there's not an objective view on this. And as long as CDC has a recommendation in their book saying you can be three feet apart, that to me just reeks of anti-science. And that's wrong. And I know it sounds really strident for some of you to hear me talk about this. I am, as you know, a very strong supporter of CDC. This is just wrong. And, you know, I learned a long time ago as a kid, you know, right is right if nobody's right and wrong is wrong and if everybody's wrong. And this is wrong. So we need to understand that we are going to have real challenges. We need to do much more in our schools before we can put kids back in there safely, including ventilation. We need extensive testing programs. We need better respiratory protection. Uh, this is really critical, and we don't have it. Now to our COVID query segment. This is where we try to answer questions about the decisions that you, our listeners, are trying to make, the situations you're trying to navigate, and the risks you're assessing on a daily basis in this post-vaccination COVID world. This week's question is a broader, more philosophical question, and it comes from Yvonne, who writes, I listen to your weekly podcast, and you've often said that the pandemic will end. Could you describe the scenarios you see as how this will end? I see so many news articles and interviews that say COVID will be with us forever, which includes lots of different descriptions of what that means. What are your thoughts on how this will all end? And, and Mike, I think, I think that's the question that everyone has right now. Well, I am confident this pandemic will eventually end. Remember, first of all, as a pandemic is a worldwide epidemic. So it won't end in one or two countries. It's going to have to end everywhere in the world. Now, end doesn't mean that the virus disappears. It means that it comes into some kind of steady state relationship with us, meaning that over time, either you were vaccinated and protected or you've had infection and developed some protection from that, hopefully long-term protection. But the point being is, is that we will have this ongoing tug of war with this virus forever. But if we see like influenza, for example, where after a pandemic, these huge waves it eventually becomes a seasonal virus. I think that's very likely what will happen here. I don't know when that'll happen. It could be some time. Vaccinating the world will surely help. Uh, but at this point, we're not going to continue to see, I think, these big, big surges that occur every three to six months. Once we get closer to 100% protection, and you've heard me talk in previous podcasts about why I think the concept of herd immunity is not realistic, but at some point, we will see enough infection that it will slow it way down. It may become one where, you know, we have 2 or 3% of the population that gets infected every year uh, and then develops protection. 
So I wish I could tell you that it's going to be a one-day event where suddenly someone comes on the TV and says, ha-ha, we just hit the end of the pandemic. That won't happen. What will happen is you get more and more and more time like you expend in the period of April, May, and June where you feel like it's a different world. That will happen. But uh, it's got a ways to go yet. There's a lot of human wood left for this virus to burn. And it's not until we get almost all that wood cleared, meaning that you've been vaccinated or you've been infected and protected before we see that kind of May-June time period feeling again. And to our listeners, thank you for all the great questions you've been sending. I'm sorry that we can't get to all of them, but please keep them coming. You can email us at ostromupdate at umn.edu. Mike, where is this week's beautiful place? Well, I'm happy to report that we have another international beautiful place. Um, This very wonderful email and a video, which is now posted on the site, came in from Rune from Norway. He wrote, Dear Dr. Osterholm, I'd like to thank you by sharing a video I created this summer of a truly beautiful place, Lofenton in northern Norway. I feel a strong gratitude towards all the people in the vaccine industry that have worked day and night to bring us COVID-19 vaccines. The vaccines made this travel possible. We all long for the day we can safely visit the beautiful places in our lives again. Here's the story behind this beautiful place. My mother is 89 years old and in good health. She travels on her own to see her children and her grandchildren. But every year with good health at her age is a treasure, and we do not know how long it'll last. The pandemic has severely reduced her freedom to move around. Contact with children and grandchildren have been limited by pandemic restrictions. The uncertainty if she would handle a COVID infection was a constant worry. It'd be truly sad if such precious years should be spent in isolation. She wanted to revisit the region in northern Norway where she was born. She wanted to see the place out in the remote and beautiful Lofenton where her ancestors had lived as fishermen throughout the centuries. However, with the pandemic, such travel would be associated with great risk for her. We were uncertain if we'd ever do the trip. But we were fortunate to benefit from extremely rapid development of effective vaccines and the tremendous logistical effort to vaccinate the vulnerable in our country. This summer, my mother was fully vaccinated and all others in the family above 18 had got their first shot of vaccine. So we decided it was safe enough to take a flight to northern Norway and drive out to visit the destinations. When you see the video, you will immediately understand why my mother wanted to visit her region of birth again. I'd never seen the place where my mother's ancestors had lived in Lofenton. I was unprepared for the beauty and serenity of the place. It was an emotional experience for me. If possible, I recommend you to watch this video on a 4K screen and with access to good internet bandwidth. Whatever equipment you have, I do hope you will spend four minutes with this slow video and slow music. Enjoy the beauty of the landscape and think of the people that have made such journeys possible. Kind regards, Rune. Oh, Rune, thank you. This uh, video you shared is moving. I've watched it multiple times, as have our staff. And your message of weaving in the care and support and opportunity for your mother with this beautiful, beautiful location and connecting back with our roots is such an important message. 
you cover a number of issues with this. So we are so honored that you shared this with us. Thank you so very, very much. And I want all the audience to please go and look at this. You'll find it um, really, truly mesmerizing and uh, so well done. Thank you, Rune. Your closing thoughts today, Mike? Well, number one, I start off by apologizing to you for not doing a better job of covering the issue with vaccines. You want specific answers, and I couldn't give them to you. Um, We will continue to do whatever we can to better understand this issue, to share the science, the practical aspects of this vaccine recommendation, what it means, doesn't mean, what does it mean for vaccine for the rest of the world. Um, It frustrates me that I can't do a better job of helping you but that's the state of the art as I see it. So at this point, uh, hang on, we'll, we'll get there. And just know that I understand both personally and professionally, these are very, very tough times. Um, every week, as I report these new numbers out to you and they just get more and more depressing, it's hard. It's really hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for you. It's hard for all of us. And uh, all I can say is, is that we must hang together. And this is where the issue of friends come in. Friends are everything, having friends, even new friends. And it's the reason why I picked the closing today as I did, because it's about how to get us by, how to get us through, how to get us across the finish line of this pandemic. I've chosen the song Friends sung by Elton John, and the lyrics by his longtime collaborator, Bernie Taupin. It was Elton John's third U.S. hit and his second to reach the top 40. Friends was not the follow-up single to your song, which was his first big hit, but was rather the title track and theme song from the movie Friends starring Sean Burry and was included on the soundtrack. It was the only hit single from that LP. The song rose to number 34 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 and number 17 on the Cash Box Top 100. On the Canadian singles chart, Friends peaked at number 13. As you listen to the words of these lyrics and you hear about the issue of childhood, think of it as in this way. We all, in a sense, in our childhood with regard to this pandemic, we're all learning as if it's brand new. So here it is, Friends, sung by Elton John, written by Bernie Taupin. I hope the day will be a lighter highway, for friends are found on every road. Can you ever think of any better way for the lost and weary travelers to go? Making friends for the world to see, let the people know you got what you need. With a friend at hand, you will see the light. If your friends are there, then everything's all right. It seems to me a crime that we should age. These fragile times should never slip us by. A time you never can or shall erase. As friends together watch their childhood fly. Making friends for the world to see. Let the people know you got what you need. With a friend at hand, you will see the light. If your friends are there, then everything's all right. Making friends for the world to see. Let the people know you got what you need. With a friend at hand, you will see the light. If your friends are there, 
then everything's all right. We all need friends right now. We promise to be your friend as best as we can possibly do it. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your friendship. But go out and find new friends. Tough times. Friends can help us along that highway. They can help us erase the pain of this pandemic. I don't know what I would do without my friends. All of you, I don't know what we would do. So thank you. Thanks for another week. And again, please be kind. Be thoughtful. It's hard sometimes. Oh my, it's hard. But be kind. I promise you, one day this pandemic will be behind us. We will be together. And what I want us all to remember are our friends, all who made it through the pandemic, by the way, because they got vaccinated. And while these vaccines may not be perfect in terms of everything we want right now, they are incredible. And we're working to even get them to be almost perfect. So thank you. Have a good week. We'll talk to you next week. And I can't tell you how much you mean to us. You are our friends. We are yours. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Ostrom Update. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. And be sure to keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu. This podcast is supported in part by you, our listeners. If you would like to donate, please go to sidrap.umn.edu forward slash donate dash now. The Ostrom Update is produced by Maya Peters, Corey Anderson, and Angela Ulrich.